This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Professor Mary Louise McClaws. Mary Louise is an epidemiologist at UNSW. I sat down with Mary Louise to discuss how Australia can achieve herd immunity through vaccination, when we should be looking at the vaccination of children, the epidemiological situation in New South Wales with their latest Delta variant outbreak and the reality of long COVID, another concerning consequence of developing COVID-19. Mary Louise and I also discuss Australia's four-phased plan to open up the country and the government's rhetoric about in future treating COVID-19 like the flu. This conversation took place on Tuesday the 6th of July. As of today, the 10th of July, New South Wales has recorded 50 new coronavirus infections in the past 24 hours. Of these 50 new cases, 26 people were not in isolation for all of their infectious period and 11 of the 50 cases were only in isolation for part of their infectious period. I'm really pleased to welcome back onto the program Professor Mary Louise McLaws, who is an epidemiologist based at the University of New South Wales, and she's also an advisory member of the World Health Organization's Panel for Infection Prevention and Control Preparedness and Response to COVID-19. And listeners to this program will know Mary Louise well, and she has guided us well through our own lockdowns here in Victoria and really... Our last conversation got such a brilliant response because Mary Louise really explained the situation, I know, for a lot of Victorians who were getting quite overwhelmed and confused. And we had an outbreak here in recent times of the Kappa and Delta variants and obviously our own lockdown. So I'm really glad to be welcoming Mary Louise back onto the program to talk about all of these issues relating to COVID-19 in Australia. Hi there, Mary Louise, and thank you so much for coming back onto the program. Good morning and thank you for having me back again. It's always a real pleasure and it clearly does make a huge difference for those listening to be able to access and understand the situation through your expertise. So first of all, given that you are based in New South Wales, I thought I'd start with the most obvious issue and topic, which is the situation in New South Wales. One thing that has been really clear and even clear in our discussions is that if one state is having a really difficult time and an outbreak, it does affect every other state. And we certainly saw that last week when we were in a situation with multiple states and areas within states in various forms of lockdown, because we saw cases from different states moving around and and sparking off new outbreaks. So this is something which obviously we should all be concerned by and, and care about is when a state is struggling and obviously New South Wales does appear to be struggling. Could you just share with us, for any Victorians who maybe haven't followed the New South Wales situation as closely as they do their own, what's been happening and and the general trajectory of the outbreak over in New South Wales? Certainly, obviously, from your perspective, where I know you had been calling for a circuit breaker, three-day lockdown very early on in the piece. Oh, look, there's... uh... Lockdowns are not nice and should not be used lightly, but they need to often be used right at the beginning rather than uh, too late. Because once, particularly Delta, gets into the community, it is very hard 
to to stop it because Delta seems to be transmitted in such a way that you don't even know who's potentially given it to you. And that's why you need to respond really rapidly. So at the moment in New South Wales, the lockdown happened quite late, uh, three days of uh, double digits. Uh, And that, of course, fulfills the federal definition of a hotspot. But that definition of 10 cases per day consecutively for three days needs to change because this is Delta and it's not behaving like the previous uh, wild strains had been. So we're in this situation now and what we're observing is uh, case numbers are going up, so it's trending, uh, even using an average 14-day rolling average or seven-day rolling average, the numbers are still going up. Now, you'd expect that. That's not so awful. Well, it is for the individual having to suffer this ghastly disease. But the part that you really need to be concerned about are the numbers of cases who were not identified early by contact tracers. Uh, They weren't found on CCTV, for example, if you're not in a shopping mall. And they've only been identified with community testing or eventually uh, coming up as a, you know, secondary contact of of somebody that's already been diagnosed. And these people have had time to spread it in the community inadvertently. And they're those that have been uh, termed not in isolation. That's the group you need to worry about. And in Victoria, when you had your lockdown and you uh, then lifted it, you didn't lift it in the South Bank complex correctly because you knew that uh, those households would acquire COVID and uh, you were quite confident that there were no other cases that weren't in isolation. So You still, though, did things slowly by lifting the restrictions slowly to ensure that that was absolutely correct. And you had a couple of days of zeros. I think you call them donuts. And then, sadly, New South Wales gifted the Delta to you. Yes. But in in New South Wales, uh, we've got what I would coin a lockdown light where you can travel to maybe your holiday home. And that's problematic because... If you've travelled outside initially the uh, the hotspot area of the eastern suburbs, you could have taken it to the northern beaches or um, to the ski fields or elsewhere. And uh, we certainly don't have a restriction for how far we can leave our house so that, you know, we could go shopping because some of the retailers are asked to think about whether they're essential rather than identifying who's essential because, of course, the authorities find that a difficult decision. But if they find it difficult, then the retailers will find it difficult and err on the let's keep the shop open and keep people employed. So uh, when you do uh, make it uh, much more relaxed... It's open for interpretation. So that's where you have problems. And I'll give you an example. So I went up the, um, up the shops in my, in my local district with a mask on because I didn't think walking to the shops constituted exercise. And, of course, people are walking past me on the footpath without uh, a mask because they've decided they're going for some exercise. But 
they've interpreted it in a very generous fashion, where if you're going past people, you need to actually show them respect and wear a mask. And then there are joggers and they don't wear a mask and they shouldn't. But what they're not being instructed to do is to jog away from people, not past people, because they're really pushing those particles out enormously. Um, they need to be told, I know you really like a particular route and you know how fast you can go on that route and you, you know how long it will take you. This is different. You have to go right away into the, the a suburban area where uh, there aren't um, shops and there's very little people. And if you see somebody really jog away from them. So then, of course, people then get to uh, the village and, of course, people don't have their mask on. So it is concerning and it's not their fault because they're not being told wear a mask when you go outside except for if you're cycling or, or running. If you're skateboarding, you may not need uh, to wear a mask um, but make the decision yourself. But the rest of you walking is, um, you know, walking to the coffee shop or walking to get a loaf of bread is not, I think, in the spirit of exercise and masking. Well, it is concerning, and, and you've pointed there to some really clear contradictions, and, and I have noticed that in the press conferences that there have been these discussions where you hear, well, New South Wales is having gorgeous weather, it's really nice outside, so you should get out as much as you can, but also you should make sure you maintain distance and not exercise with too many other people and to, to keep it minimal. So, you know, you're getting one suggestion, which was go outside because the risk is not as bad outsiders to indoors but then you're also being told but you should still limit your movements and stay at home as much as possible and it seems that these kind of guidelines that have been given and they have been used these terms like guidelines and use your common sense and you know it's up to you as to what you deem to be essential and as you said Mary Louise that businesses have been told to kind of use their common sense about what is essential and you know I've seen anecdotes around a jewellery store thinking that well they're essential so they'll stay open in case people desperately need jewellery during lockdown. These are things which I guess Victoria has never really had to contend with in the sense that we had these very clear guidelines and even guidelines around at the very beginning of these lockdowns whether we can go visit loved ones in hospital and the answer is no, we couldn't and that has happened to me certainly a number of times where I haven't been able to go in to hospitals to visit a close relative during these lockdowns and we knew straight away what the restrictions were and it seemed quite preemptive. and I wonder whether when we see these changes and these tightening of guidelines, certainly in recent times around hospitals, for example, it seems quite reactionary or, or a, a response to a situation rather than a preemptive measure taken to prevent something from happening. Yes, yeah, so look, if it's very difficult for the authorities to make uh, very obvious decisions, it's going to be even more difficult for the public. Now, the public have been, because of journalists and, and journalists like you, have become really sophisticated with understanding epidemiology and virology. They're quite remarkable. But infection control 
basically requires us to think about the other all the time. And that is very difficult when you've got pressing needs. And, and quite rightly, you know, your needs uh, need to be met. But in public health and outbreak management, uh, you've got to think of the greater good. And so you have to tell the public very clearly where the boundaries are because it makes it easier. And then people don't get cranky seeing some that they feel are flouting the rules. And uh, I do think that there's a real difference between uh, Victoria, for example, uh, where you know you, you had that second wave and then the learning curve was very steep and you put in place a, a lot of learnt lessons um, but we in New South Wales have a less prescriptive approach and from an outbreak management perspective that less prescriptive approach can be very very difficult in a highly infectious outbreak such as now we're dealing with with Delta uh, so there needs to be very clear and sadly very prescriptive ones like when you go outside you need to wear a mask unless you're running or cycling. And even then, don't run or cycle in crowded areas because you're pushing out potentially an enormous plume of infected particles. And um, we had a meeting at WHO with particle physicists because you know they're trying to understand what might encourage airborne spread because it's so important. Uh, and... Um, <laughs> You know, we're seeing in Australia a very interesting pattern that I don't think other countries, particularly the UK, where they went from 30% of community samples in April to 90% in May, June, being Delta. And it was so fast that they probably didn't have the observation that New South Wales has provided I think the world with is um, that CCTV experience where the driver walked in a shopping mall and was seen to walk past people who became infected and weren't considered to be at all close contacts because that old definition of what a contact had to be, you know, 15 minutes, you know, within a metre and a half, etc., or consistent period of time over an hour in an indoor enclosed area, uh, that doesn't seem to apply to Delta anymore because of the excellent work done by contact tracers looking at the CCTV and then calling the transmission fleeting, which basically I think means that you're walking into a plume of infected particles indoors where they're tiny particles called droplet nuclei that can hang in the air for longer. So with that knowledge, that scientific knowledge that they've gained by just watching the CCTV footage, then they need to say, because of what we think we're observing with transmission, this is why you need to wear your mask outdoors. Because otherwise, if Delta outbreak at the moment becomes bigger, we're not going to be able to uh, squash it with the way people are not wearing a mask outside. And, of course, the authorities not being able to get them to wear it because they're following supposedly the letter of the, of the rule, and that is, I'm doing exercise, I'm walking. Uh, yeah, I'm walking in a highly built-up area, but that's not, that's not the same as what the intention meant to be. 
And it does also remind me that we saw New South Wales Health Minister Brad Hazard emphasise in one of the press conferences, which is something I have not seen in recent times, and that is that we need to wear masks properly over the nose and the mouth because they are both areas that can transmit infection and um, virus particles. And it's something that I've even noted in Victoria, as you see a number of people wearing a mask under their chin, under their nose, not adequately across the kind of key areas. And then I guess it seems to be, and I'd love your opinion and input, that that would make the point of a mask almost mute because if you're not wearing it appropriately and across your nose and your mouth, it seems that it will do a far less effective job at actually being our safety net here in Victoria and actively preventing transmission over in New South Wales. So we know that when you're speaking or coughing or singing, and certainly speaking loudly on your phone, you're pushing out more particles. So the volume and the acceleration pushes out more particles. So sure, their mouth is now covered, so they're not pushing out big amounts of particles through their nose, but they still can be. But the nose can breathe in the particles. So put the mask over your nose to protect yourself, please. Because this virus, Delta, has learned, we think, and it's still hypothetical, that it's more stable on the ACE2 receptor sites in your nose, uh, you know, your upper airways, and in your eyes, potentially. And now that it's more stable, it can then hook in and enter and fuse with the, with the cell. So don't give it any chance to get in through your nose. I appreciate that people are wearing it under their chin if they're going for a walk in an empty street and then they remember to put their mask over their nose and mouth as soon as they see somebody coming up in, in the distance. But um, just where, and I see it all the time on the bus, as the buses go past, people sitting there uh, with their mask under their nose, often because they're, of course, their reading glasses or sunglasses are fogging up. And it is very annoying. Mm. But you'll find if you push the, uh, the band on your nose closer to your skin, you'll have less of a problem with the, um, the fogging up of the, the glasses. But I, I appreciate it's not comfortable, but neither is getting COVID and certainly not this one. It's been described to me as when you've got Delta is being hit by a bus. And that's for people who haven't been admitted to hospital. So don't get COVID. Yes, exactly. And uh, I want to kind of round out this discussion on the New South Wales situation by talking about those cases you mentioned earlier, not just the overall case numbers, but also how many were actually not in isolation or were only partially in isolation for their infectious period. It seems that New South Wales breaks them down into three categories, whereas Victoria just has either was or wasn't in isolation. Mm -hmm. So as an example, yesterday there were 35 cases, 24 were in isolation, so obviously had been identified as being a close contact. Four were, were in isolation partially, so for part of their infection 
infectious period and then seven were not at all in isolation for their infectious period. Obviously, that means there'll be more exposure sites. There'll also be potentially more community transmission if you have seven to 11 people in the community infectious at the time, potentially having exposure at the supermarket outside at a non-essential shop that's been judged to be essential. These are the kind of concerns, I presume, that any public health team would have. So I wonder from your perspective, observing these figures at the more detailed level in terms of community transmission, exposure sites, and those people who are still out and about whilst they're infectious, do you think that the the kind of terminology that the, the Premier is using, such as just mopping up and there are green shoots sprouting, are actually realistic or representative of the situation in an epidemiological sense? Well, before I get to the green shoots, let me uh, remind uh, your listeners that we've seen anywhere between a third to a half of all daily cases not being in full isolation during the period that they could potentially be transmitted during that pre-symptomatic period. And that's a worrying proportion. And you need to get that proportion down to zero. You'll still get new cases that have been in isolation because they were found before they became infectious and before they were diagnosed. You'll still get them and they're safe to the community. But it's the proportion that have been potentially spreading it that needs to get to zero before you get any green shoots. So I don't see the green shoots yet yesterday. The seven that weren't in isolation, four in partial, that equates to 31%. So we're still getting just under a third, and that's still way too many. Now, if you have a look at just numbers, you get distracted by thinking it's small numbers. But remember, this variant is up to 90% more transmissible than we've previously ever seen. So that's quite dramatic, really. And we may be seeing, but not we don't have the, the full data yet, that you might be spreading it earlier on in your disease than later on. And that's why it's so important to know how many people have been under uh, quarantine or isolation. And it's very difficult because you don't always shop and expose others unwittingly under CCTV or under QR code System. So there still will be a proportion, and let's hope it's small, that have never been in isolation by the time they get tested. And this is something obviously of concern for those in New South Wales, in Greater Sydney, who are under lockdown or lockdown light, because the lockdown is supposed to end at the end of this week on Friday, I believe. And there is obviously conversation that this is not going to finish on Friday. There's also community concern about the fact that perhaps some restrictions will be lifted and that it'll be too early. So I wonder when we're making these judgments or trying to make these judgments about when might be an appropriate time to start to ease up on restrictions, what kind of metrics would we be looking at? Are those metrics the people who have not been in isolation and are there other considerations that the New South Wales government would be looking at in terms of making a decision in the next three days? So there are three basic metrics, but you can you can use many others. But one is the daily rolling average. And 
I've been plotting it and it's been going skyward. But then that's not granular enough. Then you look at, as we've just spoken about at length, the proportion who have not been in isolation. And that's really important. And that's way too high at the moment. That needs to get very close to zero or zero to be very safe. And then the other one is how far it has spread geographically. And geographically, the number of sites that have been labelled close contact or go-get-tested sites is remarkable in number and in geographic spread. Now, we have two um, construction sites that um, out in Auburn in the west that have been labelled sites of concern. Now, the upside to that is that most of the workers will be outside, but the downside is that when they do need to work, they need to work close together to probably you know, assist each other or, or they carpool together or they have a drink after work together and they're you know, tight, a social work group. And so I expect more cases to be found, but I'm hoping that there will be cases that will have been in isolation uh, during that pre-symptomatic period of infectivity. So they're basically the three groups, but we've also got more cases occurring in residential aged care facilities. The elderly are very vulnerable. They don't always elicit a good response to a vaccine, and that's why you need their staff to be mandatorily vaccinated, and they haven't because there's been a failure of the phase 1A rollout. And so there's been some staff who have inadvertently worked across a couple of campuses, even though that was against the rules previously. And then when outbreaks stopped, apparently, unbeknownst to the rest of us, that rule was lifted again so that they could work across campuses. Now, I understand they have to because they don't get paid a lot, but... This is a pandemic. We need to increase their pay and tell them to do only one campus because we're never going to know until we get herd immunity whether or not there's been a breach in quarantine. And it's, you know, the driver was part of that program. That was a breach. And there are constant breaches. There's been 28, and they've caused all of the community cases to date Uh, since the 20th of March 2020, and that's about 21,000 cases. So until Australia improves its quarantine system, and, you know, you can butter this any way you like with, with choosing a different denominator, but the denominator should really be the outcome. How many cases have we had in the community? Not how many people have been through quarantine. It's How many people should never have got the infection in the first place? And we are nowhere near best practice. So we're always going to get those. So sadly, until uh, we get good herd immunity, staff in residential aged care facilities either need to be fully vaccinated and hopefully, or as they are getting fully vaccinated, only work across in one facility only rather than potentially spreading an infection across two. Mary Louise, 
That's a really great point. And it certainly was concerning to see that even just one of those aged care residents who's turned positive wasn't vaccinated. So I'm hoping that they have a good outcome. Obviously, here in Victoria, there were very bad outcomes for elderly people who were not vaccinated because obviously we didn't have a vaccine at that point in our own massive second wave. One thing that you mentioned there is herd immunity, and it's something that has been a topic for a long time when we didn't have a vaccine and people were talking about this idea of a natural herd immunity, which could happen through getting COVID-19. Obviously, that's not a realistic situation and a very bad one, in fact, showing clearly in places like Sweden and also the UK that seem to have really had problems with the virus and really seen a huge number of people get infected in community transmission. So now that we do have a vaccine or actually multiple vaccines and two of which are currently being used here in Australia, there are these conversations about how will we reach herd immunity? This is a question that epidemiologists tackle very often and it's part of their bread and butter in their job. So now that it's come to the forefront and also is supposed to inform our new four-phase plan that the Prime Minister has announced on Friday, what are the key metrics that one needs to consider when looking at how a nation like Australia can achieve herd immunity with vaccination against a really infectious disease and virus like COVID-19? First of all, let me remind your listeners that Australia has an amazing history of uptake of vaccines. And so does the UK. So they're, they're two countries that are standouts. Um, the European countries are less likely to get vaccinated compared to the UK. And we, of course, are not vaccine hesitant at all. There's a personality groups, those of us that rush out to do new things, those that will watch the early adopters and think it's it's safe and they do it. And then there are those that who have been inadvertently labelled as hesitant, but they're just the careful thinkers. They take quite some time to, to weigh up all of the issues, but they make a decision and it's usually the correct decision when it comes to their health. So Australians have nearly reached 94% of um, vaccine uptake for their zero to five-year-old kids. Now that is world-class. 15-year-old boys and 15-year-old girls being given uh, the vaccine for the human papillomavirus, that's around 80%. That's sensational. Yes, we'd like it higher, but that's pretty good. And I can, you know, label off some others as well that are, you know, really fantastic. So yeah, with that in mind, when I say a number, don't get anxious <laughs> because we really do need a large number of and I've added 12-year-olds because in the U.S. they've got an emergency use authorization to vaccinate the 12 to 16-year-olds, um, sorry, 18-year-olds. They've been doing 18 and over. Israel's been doing 16 and over. So, you know, they've got this new authority after doing a safety study with a randomized control trial, one of the, you know, the best study designs. And they've been rolling it out. So I've looked at how many people we need in the 12 years and over age group. And to get a really good level of immunity based on what we have, AstraZeneca and Pfizer, we need at least 
80% as the minimum or 95 as the preference. But when you put that in terms of total population, that's about 67% to about 80%. So that's doable. I mean, there are many countries that have this level, this target as well. So, you know, Israel has a target of, in the 60s, about 66%. New Zealand wants about 80%. And so this number that I've calculated is very doable. You know, the 67% is doable, the group that will be slower uh, to then achieve that, you know, extra you know, 13 percentage points will be sadly the uh, lower socioeconomic groups because they feel disengaged and angry. And the Melbourne Institute have put out regular um, survey results, and they're really impressive, where they've identified satisfaction with the government, financial stress and other issues. And it's the 18-year-olds to, you know, 40-year-olds that are feeling financially stressed, dissatisfied uh, with the government, and they'll be the group who will be probably slower to come on board because, rightly, they feel forgotten and unloved. You know, they're struggling to make ends meet, and in their mind, having a vaccine is a second to getting food on the table. So you've got to make it easy for this group and you can't shame them and you've got to be innovative. And I have to say, looking at the framework of the rollout, it's lacking in innovation. It's lacking in understanding that the group that we should be focusing on are the 20 to 39-year-olds. They're the ones that have more burden of infection and when we had the wild strain, the same with Delta. In the UK, they've actually found that the 18 to 24-year-olds, because they do their numbers slightly differently, they're driving this infection. They've got the highest prevalence rate wasted by population, the highest. And it's not unexpected because they're the ones that have got more social contacts, more work contacts, often because they often have multiple jobs. So why aren't we focusing on getting them on board, getting Pfizer out to them, using TikTok, Instagram, using local governments with the help of, you know, of course, and the imprimatur of the, of the federal governments to open up a, a hall, take a shop, you know, an empty shop, and have your local residents particularly the, you know, favouring the 20 to 39-year-olds to walk in, get their Pfizer before they go to work or get it on the way home, have a day off so that you can then take it easy. Uh, often with Pfizer, people say they felt great with the first one and very tired with the second dose because they're not being given time off work to get to some of the hubs, to get to... Well, first of all, they're, they're not being offered it at all. But when they are being offered it, they'll still find it troublesome to take time out from their work because, I mean, I can take time out from my work but make it up. Mm. But if they have if they have FaceTime work, such as um, hospitality or anything else, where they can't take that time off easily and make it up, then we have to make it easy for them. And I think that a lot of the decisions are made by very privileged people who've never struggled in life and don't understand 
what's happening out there. And they need to walk. Whenever I used to do research in the, my first pandemic, I would go and walk the streets and talk to people to find out what was going on because you can't assume to know what's going on, even from great surveys like the, the Melbourne Institute. I mean, they're actually getting surveys from people answering this, but sometimes observing. We uh, in, in hospital epidemiology, we call it corridor consultations. You observe, and you need to observe how young people uh, work, how they socialise, and work with that. Absolutely. And also, clearly, they have been forgotten in an obvious sense that unless they are in the phase 1A and 1B, if they're in a vulnerable group or if they're a frontline worker, they wouldn't really qualify for a vaccine at this point in time. So they're technically still waiting unless they choose to take up the AstraZeneca, which is still not the preferred vaccine for their age group, as Itagi have re-emphasised after the Prime Minister's comments. Given that herd immunity includes children as well as adults, and given that children and vaccination have come up in recent times because of the concerning rise of children becoming infected in countries like the UK, but also even in Australia, we've seen children get the virus at childcare, at schools. They're not immune from getting this virus, despite early messaging in the pandemic to say, oh, well, kids aren't affected. Clearly they are. And based on the really large data sets that the UK has, there are also concerns around the child and adult populations having negative consequences should they get the virus. For example, children can also get long COVID, and that's something that has been reported through the the United Kingdom's data gathering exercises to suggest that there are enough children getting long COVID, just as adults are, to cause a concern about not just someone being hospitalised or dying of coronavirus, but also having longer-term outcomes that would be negative in the sense of their development, but also in the sense of how they can interact and engage with society. So is that a factor that Australians and also other countries around the world should be considering when looking at vaccination of children against COVID-19, that it's not just about death and severe disease, it's also about actually reducing the number of people getting infected at all, because as we know, it can cause known medium to long-term effects, but also unknown effects? Absolutely. I mean, uh Young kids at the moment are driving for the, the 5 to 12-year-olds and the 18 to 24-year-olds are driving Delta in the UK, definitely. They are the two top groups, but you don't want to just target them with vaccines because they're driving this inadvertently. You want to give the vaccine to these groups so that they don't have a long-term sequelae, long-term adverse effects. And when we talk about long COVID, the definition is it's a work in progress, but think about this of their symptoms go on for 12 or more weeks. Now, that's an awful long time. And I think it's a rather cynical exercise to say that eventually we should work towards not providing the public with daily numbers of cases, but just hospitalisation and death, because it then just says, well, the struggling with infection is not important. It is important. We have reportable diseases, and one of them, for example, is whooping cough. Now, 
that is not just reported as a death or hospitalization. It's reported in numbers so that you get a really good idea about whether or not you're getting outbreaks because um, people aren't getting uh, vaccinated or they need to be revaccinated as adults. And where would we be if we if the public didn't have those data? I'm I'm a, of a belief that we need to have full transparency of this disease, and that includes daily numbers. WHO have joined forces with Microsoft and another group to develop the first world health hub because they believe that everybody is a data scientist and we should be having uh, transparency. So getting back to long COVID, you don't know in children whether or not it will have disaster effects on major organs because that's where your ACE2 receptor site can be located and we don't know whether or not they'll have, you know, fog brain because that's one of the long COVID symptoms, fog brain where you can't think straight. It's often because they've got really unpredictable fatigue and that's the sort of thing you don't want young kids to go into their teenagehood or their young adulthood and you certainly don't want the 20 to 39-year-olds going into their 40s and 50s um, because you know, that stage they should be really enjoying life. They've really got adult down well, so they've done their adulting, and now they're moving into maybe being being parents um, and being very productive and enjoying life, you know, to the fullest. But if they go in to middle age and children go into young adulthood uh, with any disease that they should not have had, then really we're not taking this disease seriously and their human right to safety from a pandemic. Yes, absolutely. And there is a human right to health. And it is concerning looking at a place like the UK, which has in real time and shown us what it looks like when coronavirus and the Delta variant gets out of control. And in the ONS data that is available on the UK government's website, and it's just been released a new report as of July 1, showing that a great proportion of people getting COVID, so quite a significant number of people were still self-reporting long COVID symptoms. And when we were looking at children, they had estimated that 13,000 children aged between 2 and 11, 20,000 aged between 12 and 16, and 71,000 aged between 17 and 24 had long COVID. COVID of any duration, um, so over four weeks, and then nearly all of those cohorts had symptoms for at least 12 weeks, which is the, the figure that you provided. So these are not small numbers. These are very substantial numbers. They're obviously more substantial in an adult population if more adults have been infected historically with COVID. And also there have been a number of adults in the UK who've had long COVID for over a year since they actually were infected. So I also wonder, given that the Prime Minister and the Treasurer have spoken about this four-phase plan for Australia and, and what it will look like in terms of Australia, what we measure as success, what we look to in terms of the kind of public health responses that are necessary in terms of the restrictions that we should put in place, 
There is a point that the Prime Minister identified and that the Treasurer reinforced yesterday where they believe that really we'll only look to put in substantial measures like lockdowns or other public health impositions if we see a significant rise in hospitalisation and or deaths. And that essentially, uh, the Prime Minister said, when COVID becomes the flu, we'll treat it like the flu. Now, this is something that obviously across the pandemic, we've heard COVID isn't the flu. It very much doesn't behave like the flu. And as we've seen with the Delta variant, it has in some cases caused black fungus and other fungal infections in countries like India that have done very poorly. So it's probably not a kind of comparison that would be genuine um, in terms of thinking about COVID-19. So I wonder when you hear this kind of messaging and also these plans about treating COVID like the flu, I'm sure a number of us would wonder, well, could it ever be like that? Is that a realistic scenario for us to be thinking about? And is that messaging helpful? Well, um, I can only assume that the authorities misspoke uh, using the term, you know, like the flu, given that it confuses people. As you've mentioned, they very clearly explained to the public this was not the flu. And... Uh, we don't know how soon it will just become a, a small proportion of people acquiring COVID seasonally and whether it will ever become seasonal rather than continuous. And all you have to do is ask people, how was the flu for you? And a lot of people say, who've had laboratory-confirmed influenza, that they had um, you know, a week in bed with shocking uh, temperatures, fever, and just can't remember a whole week because they were in and out of sleep. And of course, if you know, we, we get we get babies and we get elderly adults dying every year in Australia from the flu um, because they're they're either not being vaccinated or because the elderly were vaccinated but they just didn't elicit a protective response. And in public health. We shouldn't, and particularly outbreak management, you shouldn't be developing a level, a cut point where you say, oh, well, near enough is good enough and we're going to accept this level of death. Um, that's called an endemic level. And it's very cynical to have an endemic level of infection and potentially an endemic level of death that we accept. And I think that we need to work harder at ensuring that we don't have to accept this before the inevitable might happen if we don't start vaccinating the whole world. And then, of course, we will have continuing circulating virus. And I don't know if this virus will start playing nice, where instead of becoming more severe, it will then become less severe and learn to live with its host uh, more like a cold. And certainly... You don't want to get the flu. And for any of your listeners, if you haven't started having your flu injection, you will once you've suffered the flu once. And it's, and it's the real flu. It's not para-influenza, which is, you know, like, like an influenza illness, but, but usually much more milder. And um, you, you, you just wouldn't put up with that if you knew that there was a vaccine that could stop you from not going to work for seven to ten days and feeling like, you know, death warmed up. So I don't 
think it's the right time to start telling people that eventually we're just going to be looking at hospitalizations and deaths. I think the messaging basically incorrectly, I think, says we're going to have to get out of this sooner than later because this is hurting the economy and we're going to have to put up with some of this. Now, that was the thinking at the beginning of the pandemic by you know people like Boris Johnson and uh, the chief epidemiologist in Sweden, where they were thinking that herd immunity uh, would work. Now, with Delta, WHO and the UK recent studies have said very, very plainly that you can potentially uh, get a reinfection of COVID with Delta, that your neutralizing antibodies wane very fast in a matter of months and in some people earlier, and therefore you're at more risk of getting another COVID. Now, it might be milder, but it might not. Do you really want to risk that? So I think we really need to push the idea that for every vaccine that we give out in Australia, that we donate to our neighbours, particularly Indonesia, is one of our biggest um, you know, populated neighbour uh, in the region, and try really hard. Every country needs to, to do that with one of their nearest neighbours um, who's highly populated and struggling to get the vaccine out there so that it does become seasonal and so that um, it has less opportunity to develop a mutation because if most of us are vaccinated, then it has very few people to use as a playground to learn how to be more transmissible and potentially more uh, more dangerous. And we have seen doctors in Indonesia trying to manage their outbreak who have been vaccinated get the Delta variant. And um, obviously vaccines are effective and we've really spoken about this together on the show many times before. So we don't dispute that, but it is a reality that there are increasing reported instances where people who have had, for example, two doses of Pfizer Andrew Ma, for example, a BBC presenter, went to the G7 summit and actually got COVID-19 from that summit after being fully vaccinated. So there is a rationale and a reminder that just because we have vaccination doesn't mean that we should stop wearing masks, distancing, mm. taking precautions, you know, doing a, an online meeting instead of exposing hospitality workers who are unvaccinated to a population of leaders who were vaccinated. Uh, these kind of things, you know, seem to be a consideration that perhaps we're not really seeing at the moment. And I know that I've seen um, even the European Council had a meeting and the head of Luxembourg now has COVID-19 and has been hospitalised from getting COVID from that meeting. So there appears to be a kind of increasing complacency on a world scale and no doubt summer doesn't help over in Europe at the moment. You know, we're seeing that increasing complacency and and the UK where you mentioned there Boris Johnson with that messaging unfortunately he even has suggested that you know the UK will remove their restrictions earlier than the moment where 
the whole of the UK will have an opportunity to be fully vaccinated. So there is, I guess, increasing concern looking around that perhaps we're going to see Delta continue to run out of control and not get under control like we're trying to, at least here in Australia. Mary Louise, just finally, in our conversation, it's something that has come up and I have seen certainly in conversations overseas around this booster dose, the idea that uh, we have two doses of a vaccine. Some people in Australia, maybe eight to nine percent of us, have been lucky enough to be fully vaccinated already. There is a, a varying level of antibody response depending on if you are immunocompromised, if you've been taking steroids or immunosuppressants that have limited or, or reduced the efficacy of the vaccines. If you're elderly, as you said, you may not have as good a, an immune response. So there are now discussions about having a booster dose available for some of those small and limited cohorts of people who may not have had an effective response and who may have been vaccinated right at the beginning of a rollout that may have started at the end of last year in the UK or the US. I wonder when we're thinking about and planning ahead, at least in Australia, because obviously uh, we need to get more people fully vaccinated before we think of a third dose, but what are some of the things we should be thinking about and planning for ahead of time in terms of when a booster dose may be necessary? necessary for some of the groups who may not have an adequate immune response? Well, that, that question has um, equity involved and uh, safety involved. So from the equitable point of view, there have been doctors in the, and, and scientists in the UK suggesting that uh, rolling out boosters uh, shouldn't be done until people in the rest of their region have been vaccinated to at least uh, one dose. And so they're basically saying that it's nationalism to only protect the UK rather than protecting uh, countries where, for example, in Africa, where they've got a long uh, history. Uh, and, and, you know, in Africa in general, there's less than 2% of people have received two doses and less than uh, 2% of people receiving one dose. And so this particular group of scientists are concerned about sort of vaccine nationalism. But then from a different perspective, um, we do know that neutralizing antibodies uh, do wane and they wane at a different level depending possibly on your vaccine efficacy of you know, which vaccine you've had your two doses from. And um, it certainly looks like eight months with a, with a high level of vaccine efficacy to start with is a time when uh, it might have dropped by at least 30 percentage points. But, you know, for an average vaccine around, let's say, 70 to 80 percent being effective, that can drop by, oh, gosh, uh, 40 uh, 30 to 40 percentage points in eight months. So I think that the English starting to roll out that, wanting to plan to roll out that that third dose is because they're seeing that phase one of their rollout to the elderly are starting to potentially lose their neutralising response to Delta and, and, and other strains. So... Yes, I think we need to be prepared that we'll need to have this on a kind of a seasonal basis or even maybe sooner than a seasonal basis. 
But I take the point of, is it best to do that in Australia or is it better to to help the rest of the world get to at least, you know, 70% herd immunity globally? That's the difficult question that I think needs to be explored. I mean, I'm not a great lover of modelling per se because it often can't take into account behaviour and culture. But on this particular instance, uh, that might be incredibly helpful to look at what could be the effectiveness of waiting for the world to get to herd immunity versus rolling out the third dose to privileged countries such as ours and the US and and, and other countries. Mind you, you know, we, we've done very well as global citizens to stop the spread, but there are countries that haven't had restrictions, have gone on holidays, have only just uh, put in place quarantine on, you know, return uh, holiday makers. And so they haven't used their global citizenship well enough to keep the spread down, you know, to their neighbouring countries. So perhaps the scientists in the UK have something going where they're talking about, let's look at, at global rollout first before we start thinking about vaccinating for that third round. But then again, you know, if we were going to be doing that, I'd be going for we get where we get most effect, and that is the children and the young adults. Mm. That's where I'd be, if, if at all, doing the third dose. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly Australia needs to have enough vaccine and to do that quickly. And I think you've made a really great point throughout this pandemic, Mary Louise, that you know these are the people with a number of contacts that have a number of exposure sites that go to work, are often in insecure work, are putting their lives on the line essentially by going to work in the supermarket, for example, being exposed to the general public and picking up the virus and being most at risk. And another example I just wanted to close out on was we have seen the numbers come through this morning from New South Wales and there's been another confirmed case of COVID-19 in an aged care worker at the Summit Care aged care facility and the worker had worked throughout their infectious period. So there are these frontline workers, as you say, that are lower paid, that are putting their health at risk by going out to do this essential work that absolutely should have been first priority and still should be. And also those younger people who are out and about who we don't want getting long COVID and then having their entire life trajectory altered because of this disease. So thank you for putting this into perspective for us, I think, and also for explaining the science behind decisions and also what we need to be thinking about when we're hearing some contradictory and perhaps ill-informed messaging from the government around comparisons of COVID with the flu. So I really want to thank you again for taking the time today and also to wish you good luck in New South Wales and to thank those in New South Wales for doing the right thing and for staying at home and uh, and not going out and uh, doing their retail shopping in places beyond supermarkets. Yes, exactly. And, and look, a, a call out to all of the essential workers, and they're not just health. Mm. They're people that drive the trucks, that, you know, put food on the shelves for us. And they're often very young and um, and really we need them to be safe. So uh, thank you for allowing me to talk to your listeners and stay well. Thank you, Mary Louise.
I've just been speaking with Professor Mary Louise McLaws. She's an epidemiologist based at the University of New South Wales, and she's also an advisor to the World Health Organization's advisory panel for infection prevention and control preparedness and response to COVID-19. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.